The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. There came some from the ruler's house saying, your daughter's died. Why bother the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what they said, said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he only allowed Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, to come with him. When they came to the ruler of the synagogue's house, they found a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when Jesus entered the house, he said, why are you making a commotion? The girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And putting them out of the house, he took the mother and the father of the girl, along with those who'd come with him, and he went in to where the girl was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, arise, I say to you. And immediately she arose and started walking around because she was 12 years old. And they were all amazed and overcome. And he strictly ordered them to say nothing about this and to give her something to eat. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Mark to record these words. We believe they not only had power from Mark's day, but they have power this day, if we will but hear them. So we pray, Father, by your Holy Spirit, open these words now for us afresh, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. How do we find faith when our circumstances say fear? How do we find faith when our circumstances say fear? We've been walking for three weeks through several of Jesus' mighty deeds in Mark chapter 4 and 5. And as we've walked through Jesus' amazing demonstration of his power and authority, the question of faith keeps coming up. In each one of these stories, in calming the sea storm, in casting out the demons from the man, in the healing of this sick, hemorrhaging woman, and finally in raising this dead girl, faith the question of faith is at the heart. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus said to them in that storm-tossed boat, now made still, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In the end of the uh, passage with the man with the demons, we don't find the question of faith as much as the playing out of his faith as this newly healed and freed man goes throughout the Decapolis telling them how much Jesus had done for him 
And everyone marveled. This man had put his faith in what Jesus had done. And then in the story, which I didn't read today, of the woman healed who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, after she touches Jesus' cloak, which we'll come to in a moment, Jesus says in verse 34 of chapter 5, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And then today, with Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, whose daughter has just died, verse 36, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Have faith. The difficulty with the word faith, as as many know, is that we don't realize that it means trust. That's really what the word faith means. What do you put your trust in? Who do you put your trust in? I mean, the world is crying out. The media is crying out. This election is crying out. Everybody's crying out. Where do you put your trust? As we've looked at these mighty deeds of Jesus and this question of faith in a situation where fear would seem to be natural, part of the answer of how we find faith is answering the question that is asked of Jesus at the very first of these mighty deeds in the sea storm. In verse 41 of chapter 4, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. See, these mighty deeds of Jesus demand the answer to the question, who is this? Who is this? And friends, as we answer that question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? This is the soil where faith grows. When we answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? This is the soil in which faith, trust in him, grows. How do we find faith when the circumstances around us are crying out to fear? It's really a question of worldview. I know that's a word we throw around a lot these days. We want to sound like, you know, we're educated and read lots of blogs, and so we talk about worldview. But really, worldview is, is, I think, the best way to describe it because whether we're talking about religion, whether we're talking about an approach to media or where we spend our money or where we spend our time, the way we grab a hold of an ideology, all of that is categorized under this question of worldview. And our ability to find fear evaporate in the face of the storms that we face will be found in our worldview. The first week when we looked at this series, we asked the question, we said, does Jesus, is Jesus conscious of my circumstances, right? Is he aware of what's going on? And we answered a resounding yes. And then we asked, is Jesus competent to deal with those circumstances? And again, a resounding yes. And we've seen that again in each of these mighty deeds. But the biggest question behind all of those, as much as it's helpful to know that Jesus is conscious of my circumstances and that he is competent to deal with them, the biggest question is, does he care? Does he care? It's the question that moves us from being simple deists to Christians. 
Deism says, well, there is a God. He's out there somewhere, but I'm not sure if he really cares. Christianity demands, proclaims, we know God cares. We know he loves us. It's been proven to us, and we see that today. I was sitting on a plane um, a couple weeks back on a lengthy flight, and I had a, uh, a lady next to me who in- immediately introduced herself as a Hindu. Uh, I was not wearing a collar. I wasn't sort of, you know, advertising that I wanted to talk about faith. Um, but she immediately introduced herself as a Hindu, and I thought, ah, here's a true believer. I mean, she's, she's ready to convert me on this plane, and, and I'm ready to do the same right here. So, I mean, I'm, this, was, this was an interesting, I can only imagine what the people around us were, were thinking as they heard us in quite animated voices talking. I thought, Lord, just, I hope this keeps the plane in the air. But... Um, as we talked about it, a lot of this question came up with issues of fear and how do we deal with problems of evil and all the rest, but we, we really found ourselves talking about fear and how her faith and my faith dealt with fear. And there was no question in her view that God, her view of God, Brahman, God's aware of what's going on. Like that was, that was clear, we both agreed on that. Um, and for the most part, we agreed that God, is competent to comprehensively deal with whatever comes at us. We both agreed on that, although I pushed hard on what I'll show you in a moment. But the third area was really interesting. When I, I, I pushed her, I just said lovingly, but how do you know your God cares about you? Like, how do you know? And she, and she referred to her holy writings. And I said, that's great, but has God demonstrated, proven so as we look today, just quickly, I want to I ask these questions of uh, really focusing on quickly the competency issue. Again, is God competent to deal with what makes us fearful? But really center in on this care question, does God care? So quickly, does, is God competent? Is Jesus competent to deal with the things that would make me fearful? Well, first we see in the sea storm, just to recap, the sea uh, really means chaos in the ancient Near East. Uh, The sea was the place of storms, yes, a place of food and commerce, but also a place of great fear and chaos. These mighty winds would come up and would destroy families and communities. And just with a word, Jesus says, peace, be still, and the wind ceased and the sea was calm. I mean, he's, he's incredible with a word. Who is this? Who is this that commands even the wind and the sea? He's competent to deal with chaos. But also then with demons, the man with a legion of demons, this idea that I know is difficult to comprehend at times, but this idea of personal evil, personified evil, that there is an enemy out there seeking to devour us, and that again, as this man who is filled with a legion of demons, Jesus just says the word in chapter 5, verse 8, and says, he said to him, come out of the man, and out they come. Who is this? Power over chaos, power over demons. And then this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. It's more than just being sick, but it's the ostracism that comes with being sick. Because in the Jewish culture, if you were actively ill, if you had an open wound, especially this woman hemorrhaging, you are cut off from the community. You can't go to church. No one can touch you. No one can be with you. 
Verses 25 and 26, we read of chapter 5, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Totally sick. Totally ostracized. Totally alone. And verse 27 says, she heard the reports about Jesus. Hear the gospel. She heard the words about Jesus. This amazing story of this man going around announcing the kingdom of God and healing people. And she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Remember that touching moment. We'll come back to that in a moment. She touched his garment. For she said, even if I touch his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she'd been healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Who is this? That even touching his garments can heal someone sick and ostracized for 12 years. He is competent but so much more so when we come to Jairus' daughter. Not only does he deal with chaos, not only does he deal with demons, not only does he deal with sickness, but he deals with the ultimate weapon, the ultimate thing we fear, death. We had a hockey game last night. We were watching the Dallas Stars play the Columbus Blue Jackets. I know that hockey is kind of a new thing for most of you. But let me just explain something about hockey. If you can't solve the goaltender, you can't win. Dallas Stars coaching staff hear this on the podcast today. If you can't solve the goaltender, you can't win the game. It was horrible. We could not solve Columbus's goaltender last night, and we lost, and badly. But again, bad hockey, a bad game of hockey, is still the greatest game on the planet. So. But so it is with our worldviews. And we're talking about how we live out our lives, the worldviews we cling to, that which we trust. If our worldview doesn't comprehensively and competently deal with the question of death that we face every day, then that worldview can't stand. Just like trying to solve that goaltender. You can't solve that goaltender, you can't win. You can't deal with death, this worldview cannot stand. As Leo Tolstoy famously wrote around the time of his conversion from atheism to Christianity, he said, what meaning has my life that the inevitability of my own death does not destroy? What meaning has my life that the inevitability of my own death does not destroy? And in the story of Jairus' daughter, we find this ruler of the synagogue, this upstanding religious man, a leader in his community, Jairus, whose daughter is near death. Verse 23, come lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And Jesus goes with him. But then there's the whole interruption, the divine interruption with this hemorrhaging woman and her healing. And whether it slowed Jesus down a bit having this interaction or not, in verse 36, we hear the horrible news. Verse 35, we hear the horrible news. The people come from Jairus' house and say, your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher 
anymore. It's the worst possible story. It's a story that I know some people in this room have personally lived through. Death has come on his child. It's over. There's nothing to be done. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says, do not fear. In this moment of the greatest fear, believe. And so he goes with him. He says the girl is sleeping. She's not dead, which is not that Jesus doesn't understand the medical condition of death. Jesus is not confused here. Jesus is speaking prophetically because Jesus is showing us just as Paul will throughout the rest of the New Testament refer to believers who have died as those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is prophetically saying, now in me, if you're in Christ, if you are living in the power of the resurrection, then believers never really die. They simply go to sleep for a time to be awoken by the Lord at a later date. She's asleep. But they laugh at him. He throws them out of the house. Mom and dad come in with him along with Peter, James, and John. Thankfully, they went because they were able to record this incredible story for us. And he touches her by the hand and says, Talitha kumi, which the text here says, translates as, um, little girl, I say to you, arise. But it's not really quite as formal as even that. Talitha kumi is what a parent says to a child in the morning. Time to get up, little girl. Time to get up. I mean, it's sweet. It's, it's simple. It's what would have been spoken over this girl by her parents each and every day. Some of us who've got school-aged children, especially teenagers, have to speak this word many times over a child in the morning. Talitha kumi. Time to get up, little girl. That's what Jesus says to her. And she arises. And he sort of tongue-in-cheek says, give her something to eat. But I think that's a way to say, you know, she's really alive now. Living human beings need food, so give her some food. She's alive. It's an amazing story. You see, what this is demonstrating, in this, still in this competency question, is Jesus competent to deal with all that gets thrown at me in this life? Jesus not only has power over chaos, not only has power over demons, not only has power over sickness, but he has power over death itself. You see, this story is pointing to his own death and resurrection. This moment which has become for human history the center point of all human history. When the Son of Man dies and on the third day rises again. And now, by doing so, as I will probably quote on Easter morning, when death stung Jesus, death stung itself to death. Jesus has overcome that final enemy. As 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again what we'll read on Easter when we come to that amazing liturgical high point of the year. In 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection, Paul describes this final enemy that needs to be beaten down. Paul writes, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God, the, um, the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For Jesus must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then Paul 
decides he wants to mock death. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? You see, he's calling him out. Come on, death, show me your victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus in his death and resurrection has overcome the final enemy. And we now, if we put our trust in him, if we say, I trust him and his life and his salvation, that resurrection that he experiences becomes our own resurrection. On November the 1st, as you've seen, we have our All Saints Day service. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate each year all those faithful departed who've gone before us. See, again, it's a worldview question. Jesus has competently dealt with even death so that we can come on All Saints Day. Yes, we mourn, but it's that 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, we do not mourn as those without hope. And so before God, we on All Saints Day lay our loved ones before the Lord and say, Lord, we give thanks for the resurrection. And even in our Eucharistic liturgy, which we're invited to in a moment, every Sunday, we say, before the Sanctus, we say, with angels, that it's not just you worshiping, us worshiping here, it's not just Christians around the world, but we say we are worshiping with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven, all the saints. We worship together because Jesus has competently overcome the final enemy, even death. But as I said, the biggest question is, does Jesus care? I know he's powerful. I know he's competent. As I talked with that dear lady on that plane, the big question was, how do you know that your God cares for you? Has he shown you? Has he demonstrated his care for you? I mean, I love Psalm 8. It was one of my favorite psalms when I first became a Christian. I was in my, uh, just entering my senior year of high school. And I started reading the book of Psalms and I came to Psalm 8 and I loved it. It's verse 3. When I look at your heavens, O Lord, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And I read that and I said, that's amazing. And then a minute later I said, but how do I know that's true? I mean, it would work great on a Hallmark card. But show me, O God. And he has. We see that here in the way he raises this girl from the dead. It's a small thing. It's a small word, but it means everything. When that girl is laying dead in that room, Jesus doesn't just speak the words of resurrection over her. Time to get up, little girl. But it says in verse 41 that he touches her by the hand. He took her by the hand. And again, we can miss that because in an ancient Near Eastern world, in a Jewish world, you don't touch dead bodies just like you don't touch sick people. And Jesus has this bad habit of constantly touching sick people and now dead people and seeing God's power work through them and heal them and raise them from the dead. And why does that matter? It matters because of this. The reason that you would not touch a sick person in the ancient Near East and the reason you would not touch a dead person is you believed that that could enter into you. 
It was spiritually contagious. If you touch them, you got what they got. And Jesus touches her hand just as he allows his cloak to be touched by the woman who's hemorrhaging. Just as he touches Peter's mother-in-law when she has a fever. Just as he touches the leper in chapter 2 when he comes asking for healing. He touches them because he knows exactly what he's doing. He's saying, yes, everything that is broken and wrong in you, I am taking into myself. Everything that makes you broken, everything that makes you sinful, everything that makes you unclean, everything that breaks your body, everything that kills you, I am taking it, yes, into myself. You want to know that God cares for you? Look at the cross where he hangs there taking your sin and mine in his own body. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died. This is love. And as I said to that dear lady on the plane, we both believe that God knows he's conscious of our pain and those things we fear. We both believe that God is competent to deal with that fear. But do you know that he cares for you? Because he has put on display for the world his love. God demonstrates. He demonstrates. Hear that word? Demonstrates. His love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Karl Barth, the greatest, probably the greatest theologian of the 21st century was at a conference in 1962 and was asked by one of the panelists if he could sum up all of his theological learnings. What have you learned all these years, Professor Bart? And he said, I can sum it up with the song my mother taught me. And he meant it with all sincerity. He said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Bart like you and me, have the opportunity to behold the proof of Jesus' love. Does he care? Look to the cross. He has shown you his love. How do we find faith when our circumstances say fear? We have to answer the question, the worldview question, who is this? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Not only is he conscious of what's going on in our lives, those things that cause fear. Not only is he competent to deal with those things that cause us fear, but he cares. He touches us. He bears what's wrong in us in his body, takes death upon himself. What fear are you facing today? Who is this man to you. One of my first pastoral visits as I close was with a dear woman named Ada who was in her late 90s. I did not know what I was doing yet. Sat there, this woman was so close to death. Dear saint, love the Lord. And the person I was with said to her, he said, Ada, you know you're close to death. 
Are you fearful? And Ada, deaf as a doorpost, heard the first question, the first comment, yes, I'm near death. But her response, yes, I'm very cheerful. (laughs) Because Ada could answer the question, who is this? In the face of her fear, Ada knew that she would soon die. And yet she would hear those same words spoken over this little girl soon over Ada. Time to get up, little girl. Time to get up, little girl. And that she would awake. And there would be a wedding banquet laid. And Jesus would say, give Ada something to eat. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.